Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Kara Isaac's contemporary inspirational romances are rom-com adventures designed to appeal to a wide audience. Yes, even those who don't share Kara's faith walk. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Wellington author Kara talks about combining laugh-out-loud funny love stories with her other life as a pastor's wife, mother of three and public servant. But before we talk to Cara, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat today, plus links to Cara's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Cara. Hello there, Cara, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. Now, look, beginning at the beginning of where all good stories start, was there a once upon a time moment when you realised that you had to write fiction or your life wouldn't be complete? And if so, was there any particular catalyst for that moment? Um, I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember. So I've, I've always loved books my whole life. Uh, I'd, I'd never really thought about being a writer until I was in, in my 20s. Um, and I was, I was having a moan to a friend one day. We were having coffee and I was kind of complaining to her about how um, I wanted to read more Christian fiction, but I just couldn't find anything that I personally related to. There was a lot of, um, I guess, what I call bonnet fiction, so historical prairie set romances. Um, and at that time, Chicklet was also um, kind of coming onto the market following um, Bridget Jones's diary. And a lot of uh, books were coming out that kind of featured a 30-something-year-old heroine desperate to get married and settle down, and that wasn't my cup of tea either. And she... Um, she looked at me and she said, well, if you can't find anything that you like, why don't you just write something that you would? And I laughed it off. But then six months ago, six months later, I was uh, on holiday on vacation. I had some time on my hands and I thought, well, um, why not just open a Word document and, and have a crack and see what happens? And I never really expected um, that I would fall in love with writing and creating characters and, and stories, but I did. And so that was the beginning of, of 2006. So haven't really looked back since then. That's fantastic. That's now more than 10 years ago, which is quite a reasonable apprenticeship, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it it certainly felt like it, that's for sure. And so far you've published three books in the contemporary inspirational romance sector. Um, They're they're not strictly speaking a series. Mostly we we work with series on this podcast, but they are all very cleverly linked. Uh, both in theme and setup. I wonder if you could tell us, firstly, why did you choose that genre and why, what particularly draws you to inspirational fiction? And secondly, was the setup especially um, planned for marketing purposes? Um, yeah, there's, so there's a couple of things in there. I guess the, the thing that particularly draws me to inspirational um, romantic comedies is uh, I, love, I love books that make me laugh. Um, I love stories that make me laugh. Um, and I guess the inspirational component is 
I, I like stories that also explore, I guess, um, you know, questions of, of faith and life and um, why people make the choices that they do and, and how that affects them. So that was uh, the right marriage for me uh, as a writer. Uh, maybe one day I'll branch out somewhere different. I don't know at this point. Uh, and and no, it wasn't it wasn't a, a clever a clever marketing thing. When I started writing um, close to you, it was uh, I chat, chatted to an editor at a at a writers conference, and and she'd said to me, oh, "Have you ever thought about writing a story set in New Zealand around the Lord of the Rings?" And I said no. And I thought in my head that's one of the craziest things I've heard in my entire life because. For the previous eight years, all I'd heard from people was, if you want to break into publication, you've got to write American characters set in America. No one's interested in, in reading um, stories that aren't set uh, in the States. So I'd been writing manuscripts that you know followed, followed those rules and having some success in terms of signing with a literary agent, but not, not success in terms of signing with a, with a publisher for a book deal. Uh, so I kind of shoved that idea to the back of my head and, and then went home and I wasn't working on anything else at the time and this the story idea um, kept bugging me where this uh, tour guide called Ali and this um, reluctant tour participant called Jackson just kind of po- popped into my mind and, and wouldn't really leave me alone. Uh, and around uh, around the same time as that, the, the editor that I'd been talking to, her house, uh, announced that they weren't going to be acquiring any more romances for um, a period of time. They were, they were full, so... I started writing the story thinking that it would really only be a, a fun story for me, um, for, for my own entertainment, thinking that there was no chance that another publisher might actually be interested in uh, a crazy romantic comedy set in New Zealand around The Lord of the Rings. Um, so no one was more surprised than me when that, that turned out to be wrong and it got picked up by by Simon and Schuster. Uh, but I mean, the the thing about having an American, one American character and one uh, New Zealand or Australian character is it's kind of happened so far. It's just because um, I just I just find a lot of humour in some of the cultural differences. It's humour I've I've had in my life with American friends and how we all speak the same language, but you know, have often have different understandings of things or use words differently, and they have very different meanings and. Um, I've just found in these books that it's just added a fun, a fun new element into the story. Sure, and the setting is very realistic. I mean, I felt it very believable that you yourself had actually been a tour guide at some time because a lot of the um, the things that happen had a very believable quality to them. Have you ever worked as a tour guide? Um, no, I haven't. That was, <laughs> that was all of my imagination. <laughs> oh, you've got a very good imagination. <laughs> And I thought the same thing about the second book, Can't Help Falling, which is set in Oxford. And once again, it features um, a, a New Zealander and, and an English person this time. And Ali and Jackson do have a secondary role in it. Once again, Oxford comes through quite strongly. So ha- have, you been, have you been studying in Oxford at any time? I have not. That was all thanks to Google's Google Street View and a whole lot of a whole lot of research. That was actually one of the things that stressed me out the most when I was writing that book was, um, you know, the the idea of getting important details wrong about the setting and finding myself at the end of some some grumpy English readers. Um, but so far, I've been been very fortunate that that hasn't happened. Yes, and I must admit, I must mention too that close to you, it, they are um, <clears throat> Tolkien freaks or geeks. And a lot of the, uh, the the sort of dynamic revolves around knowing a tremendous amount about Tolkien and the movies. 
Were you a bit of a Tolkien or, or Lord of the Rings fan yourself when you started? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would certainly call my, myself a, a fan in the minor in the minor league. Certainly, nothing like some of those some of those characters and in, in the books who really really take it up to to the next level. Uh, so that was a lot of a lot of fun to to research people who you know for that's actually um, a really major part of their lives. And have you found that the um, the Lord of the Rings freaks have really followed the book? Um, I mean, there's there's been a bit of a, a mix. It's it's been interesting. There have been um, I've had a lot of readers saying, you know, I was I was a fan of Tolkien and I was really a bit dubious about how this author was going to pull it off, and I was pleasantly surprised by by how she did. Um, and then you've got you know I, I guess a whole a whole lot of um, Tolkien Tolkien fans who you know think that think that romances are just literarily a bit, a bit beneath them and and, <laughs> and wouldn't go near it. Maybe the same thing about Narnia with the second book. <clears throat> yeah, Narn- the 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 Narnia theme in, in Can't Help Falling was um, was a really fun one because I've always been a huge fan of C.S. Lewis, and so when I was researching close to you and discovered that J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were good friends and actually belonged to a critique group together um, when they were both at Oxford University, um, and suggesting that connection to my editor as uh, the connecting the the two books together. I was, I was so excited about that because weaving in um, the Narnia and also kind of carrying through that literary theme into, into the second book and connecting the characters as well um, was just really a lot of fun. Yeah, it worked very well. And then, of course, the third one, you um, moved to Sydney and Hillsong. You don't quite have the same literary theme there. Um, I know that you are married to a pastor. You obviously have a very close understanding of how churches run but that's an interesting insight into a mega church yeah it is um it was that was a really I guess challenging part for for me to for me to write I'm I'm a pastor's daughter um and then my husband wasn't a pastor when I married him but he became one shortly uh, thereafter so I've kind of spent most of my life around churches and behind the scenes of churches uh and so you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I was writing Then There Was You um, was kind of acknowledge the fact that there's some great aspects to churches and sometimes there can be some not so great aspects. And, you know, ad- ad- admitting that and being truthful about that, you know, doesn't doesn't make you anti-church. It just, you know, makes people real and human and imperfect. Yes, sure, sure. And all of those titles are reminiscent of popular songs. So I actually... I thought, that, that's a song, I'm sure it is. I actually Googled it because I thought they might all be Beatles ones. They weren't quite all Beatles ones, although some of them are pretty close to Beatles lines in some cases. But are you into music? Was that deliberate? Um, it, was, it wasn't to start. Uh, my, my husband is, is hugely into music. And then with Can't Help Falling, uh, we had, I've got some friends and one of the, the husbands in the barbershop quartet and he's um, put together every, every book launch I've had. Him and him and friends have shown up and, and crooned the song to go with the title. Um, so now, as as much as I can, I'm kind of un, under pressure to, to keep keep the trend going so I can can keep the songs coming. <laughs> That's great. So when you started with this, the first book, close to you, did you have an idea for a series in mind at that point? Um. Like you say, not a traditional series. Um, I was I was really clear in my own mind that kind of doing 
the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien kind of component was, you know, really going to work well for um, one book and it wasn't really a concept that you could continue on through a series as well. Um, what I really wanted to do, and I'm glad I've been able to do so fun, is um, connect some of the themes and the characters uh, together. Because you know, I'm always a little bit sad when I when I close a book and I've gotten gotten engaged with these characters and feeling feel like I'm having to say goodbye. And so, kind of be, being able to carry, you know, like you said, Jackson and Ali are secondary characters and and can't help falling. For readers to be able to see some of their journey unfold from a different perspective um, in future books, that's that's been really really a lot of fun, and and also really um, readers really seem to enjoy it as well. Yes, I bet they do. When we get on a little bit further and talk about future projects, we we might discover if, if there's going to be continuing life in these in this in these couples, but we'll leave that towards the, for towards the end. Um, <clears throat> I guess that inspirational romance has its conventions just like any other romance subcategory. I mean, obviously, there's virtually no, well, there's no sex and very little physical expression of affection. Um, but are there other, perhaps even more tricky things like balancing the amount of faith talk that you have uh, uh, along with the rest of life? Yeah, I mean... I've always been really clear with, you know, with myself as I'm, I'm writing a book that my first job as an author is to, you know, to tell the story of the characters as authentically and naturally um, as I can in a way that makes sense for their own journey. Um, and I always get really irritated when I'm reading books, when I feel like authors, you know, kind of are using, you know, are using or coercing characters into, um you know, situations or events or, you know, the way that they react to things and things that just actually isn't normal because I've got some kind of, um, you know, broader spiritual message that they're trying to hammer home to the reader or something like that. Um, so I, I've always written um, for the characters first and kind of what feels right for their journey. Uh, so, you know, obviously, and then there was you because it's set in a church, there's kind of probably a lot more kind of, um faith kind of content um whereas in in close to you you've got um Jackson who you know is kind of was he grew, grew, grew up in a Christian household but has kind of uh walked away from his his faith and Ellie who you know similarly has kind of suffered a bit of a crisis after um some hard things that have happened in her life uh and and there um you know as much as possible I just tried to Try to follow some of the threads around Tolkien and some of his books, and you know, keep it keep it more organic. And some, you know, there are some readers out there who, you know, really do think that to be an inspirational book, you need to, you know, have someone thumping a Bible and and quoting um, Bible verses. And you know, if that's the kind of book that works for them, then that's great. But you know, I, I it's just not not the kind of book that I write. Yes, um, the sort of obligatory salvation message would be a little bit of a um, a dampener for a lot of people, I think. But but the touch that you've got, I think um, that plenty of readers could enjoy the books without necessarily sharing the faith background. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, and it's. I think it's been one for me one of the the biggest and and nicest surprises. You know, when Close to You came out, um, Whitpools was incredible. Um, they were, you know, they were stacking it, you know, right in the front next to, you know, 
E.L. James and some, you know, a whole bunch of other authors. Um, and I can have kept my, you know, my writing and my professional life, you know, very separate up to that point. And so the first some of my colleagues knew of me being a writer was walking into Whipples and seeing my book in front of them. And so I had, you know, my bosses and colleagues and all sorts of people, friends from, um, you know, from my kids' daycare and school and kindergarten, you know, none of whom had a faith, you know, saying, oh, I bought, I bought your book and I'm starting to read it. And I was thinking, oh, this, this could be interesting. I'm not entirely sure <laughs> how this is going to work. And, um, you know, they've, they've all really, you know, seemed, seemed to, en- to enjoy it. Um, you know, a couple have said to me, Oh, you know, it's you know, it's been a long time since I've kind of thought about um, kind of God or anything like that, and you know, it kind of got me thinking about a few things. And you know, and others others said to me, oh, you know, when when I, I I knew you were a Christian, so I thought there might be something in the book, and you know, I'm I'm glad that it wasn't as bad as I thought it could be. <laughs> um, but yeah, it has it has been. Um, and I and I've got emails from readers as well, just saying, you know, if, if someone had told me your book was a Christian romance, there's no way that I would have, you know, touched it. Um, but I did because I picked it up because I saw the Tolkien or I saw the C.S. Lewis or the Narnia, um, and you know, I, I I was really surprised because it wasn't at all what I expected you'd find in a Christian romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think some of the trends in romance, I must say that I've been a bit personally um, disengaged because after E.L. James, there was a real swing towards a lot more explicit and and actually I would consider it abusive type of relationships. And um, so it's very refreshing to have something that is completely at the other end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, it is, and I mean, I, I think that kind of the the El El James and the whole Fifty Shades of of Grey Grey thing is, you know, it's a really interesting one because it's yeah, it's opened a space for you know some really interesting conversations with people. I had the last time I got my haircut, I had a really interesting conversation with my twenty one year old hairdresser um, about it. Um, and but then, like you say, I think it's also you know potentially done some damage because it's normalised some things in romantic relationships, which you know are in no way normal and and shouldn't in any way be glorified. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're published, as you mentioned, by Simon and Schuster, who's one of the big five of international publishing, and and even managing to get yourself into a house like that is a huge coup for somebody sitting in little old Wellington, New Zealand. How did that come about? Um, I, before, before I got married, I, I had a, I had a thought I'd been, I'd been writing for a few years at, at that point And, um, and I'd, I'd heard uh, through a whole range of people that the best way to, to make connections that you needed with, with editors and agents was to get yourself to a writers' conference, uh, for me the you know the best writers' conferences were in the states, um, and so I really wanted to reach a particular point in my in my writing journey before I felt like that was kind of the right way to make a pretty big investment and in, you know flying all the all the way over there to attend a conference. Um, but then just before I got married, I kind of had this this revelation that soon I'd have to be making financial decisions, you know, shared with my husband, and so now was the now was the time to 
spend some money and go and do, and do something big. So um, my choice was to, to go to an American Christian Fiction Writers Conference, which that year was in Denver. Um, and so I met a range of editors and agents there. They have what they call pitching sessions where you get 15 minutes to sit down with an editor or an agent and kind of pitch them um, your story and your ideas and kind of talk to them about the industry and what they're looking for. Um, so I pitched at that one, I pitched my very first manuscript, which will never see the light of day and, um, you know, got soundly rejected by everyone. But that was kind of the start of making um, connections with people in the industry and, and kind of just starting to, to form relationships. And my editor, Beth Adams, who acquired close to you, um, you know, she had rejected three of my manuscripts before that but she you know the last two she'd always been really encouraging and just said look I really like your writing you know we just don't have a space you know for what you're doing right now but because in toes crossed one day you'll you know you will write something that kind of will fit into fit into our program at the right time and that's that's what happened with Close to You. Yes it's pretty remarkable that you, you I think you actually did you complete four full-length books before Close to You, is that right? Close to Close to You is my fourth, yeah. Close to You is your fourth, okay. So that is a, dis, a considerable um, apprenticeship and it reminded me of a conversation that I had with James Ziskin last week where he had this idea that some writers, he didn't, not all, but some writers have to have a lot of practice words before they start mining the gold. You know, he, he thought maybe 500,000 practice words before you started getting a clear running stream of creative um, good stuff. Would you sort of feel that there's some value or truth in that kind of approach? Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely think that there is real, real value in, in not having any expectation that, you know, your first manuscript is going to be the one that, you know, shakes up the publishing world and, and you know, you just kind of have the doors open and you magically walk through them. Um, I think that, you know, for, for most writers, there is a real process of um, learning your style and learning your voice and, and learning the craft and, and like you say, doing doing that apprenticeship and doing those, those hard yards. Um, and, you know, I'm really grateful for the way that my journey uh, in, ended up because I, actually, I can't actually imagine anything worse than kind of being contracted for my first ever manuscript and then suddenly having to, to write new books under a contracted deadline um, and not knowing myself or my process well enough to to really understand how that was gonna, going to work for me. Yeah, now that um, actually introduces the, the follow-on very nicely into a question that I do like to ask people, and that is, is there one thing in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? Um, honestly, I just think it's been perseverance and a sheer refusal to give up to be honest it was yeah you know it was 10 years from the time that I started um writing to the time that you know I, I got to hold close to you in my hands as a as a real real published book and you know there were many many times over those years um where I wondered if I was doing what I was meant to be doing if I was kind of chasing this writing dream out of you know some sense of misplaced pride of just wanting to see my name on a book and especially in the later years when I was married and we had a house and we were having a family and you know and writing was taking away not just time but also financial resources away from my family and you know there were a number of times where I you know I got really close to to kind of saying okay do I need to 
do I need to put this aside for a while and, and just let it go? And, you know, every every time I thought that, there was always kind of one one more, you know, one thing that came up that kind of encouraged me to, to take the next step, be it finaling in a writer's contest or signing with my literary agent or whatever it might be. But, you know, it wasn't, an e- it wasn't an easy 10 years there were in the especially the two years before I signed the book deal with um for close to you there were so many times when we got so close the you know my books got to publishing board in one instance um there was a three book contract literally in the mail and the publisher decided to review their review their whole fiction line and they pulled all of the contracts and so you know so things like that happened where it was kind of that you know so close to seeing your dream come true that you're literally kind of holding it in your hands and then suddenly it's disappeared again um that made me wonder if it was really just not meant to happen for me um but yeah I think I think it's yeah it's it's just simply being a willingness to kind of hang in there and and keep chasing the dream yeah 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 Turning now to Cara as a reader, you know, this is known as the binge reading podcast. Who do you like to binge read when and if you have any time to do it these days? But even who have you binge read in the past? Um, So at the moment I am binge reading Kristen Higgins, her Blue Heron series. Um, So Kristen is a general market um, romance writer. So um, I should probably warn people there's some shit. She's not at all explicit, but there is some adult content in her books. Um, she's just a wonderful writer. I love her characters and I love the way that she writes. And she's, you know, she's, I've taken a couple of classes by her at conference and um, she's also a wonderful teacher. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm, binge, I'm binge reading at the moment. Um, early on in my youngest, youngest life, I binge read all of Enid Blyden, all the famous five, all the secret seven. And then I moved on to Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys. Um, I will soon be binge reading Terry Block's Black Stocks If I Run series. So um, that's a romantic suspense series. Um, And the last book comes out in March. And I have been hearing amazing things about it for the last two years, but I refuse to start reading the first book until the whole series is out so I can just do them back to back. How amazing. And how many are there in the series? Uh, just three. Three, yeah. Oh, fantastic. I must I must look it up and see so see if I like the look of it. Mm. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together, so tell me a little about what you're working on now. Um, so I'm working on a, a couple of things now. So the first thing that I'm working on at the moment is there's a character um, called Kat who's appeared in my previous book she was Ellie's best friend and close to you and Paige's cousin and then there was you um, so I'm writing her story at the moment um, and all going well that will be out late late this year um, and then I'm also in the process of um, of rewriting the the beginning of an, 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 a new set of books which this one is actually um, set in the States um, within, um, it's, they're both American, of heroine and heroine. Um, and that's a, a, I guess, kind of, again, a linked series that I'm excited about. It's set, about, it's set around three friends who were um, good friends at college and uh, the series picks up 10 years, 10 years later. There was um, an event that happens in college that kind of splinters their relationships and sends them on separate paths. And this is kind of a bit of a, um, a reunification story, picking up their stories um, 10 years on. Sounds fun. So Kat is still based in Sydney, is she? Um, yes, yep. So this this next one, uh, Kat's story, is is set between um, Sydney and, and regional regional Queensland. Oh, cool, cool. And is there an American um, 
you know, opposite number? No, not this time. This her her um, opposite number is an Australian. So Kat's, Kat's an American Australian. Her father's American. Her mother's Australian. Um, but she has has lived in, in both countries. So I was, um, you know, kind of kind of a composite of the two countries. Yeah. And so, Cara, we haven't talked very much about your life as a whole person, but you've got an amazing a number of commitments. You've got three small children, you're a pastor's wife, and I gather you're, you're returning to work after maternity leave next week. Tell us a bit about how you managed to do it all. <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, the only way that I can do it all is because I have a, you know, I have a phenomenally supportive a phenomenally supportive husband who um, doesn't understand romance books at all, but loves that you know loves that I get to do something that I'm passionate about. Um, and I just I have a, I have an amazing team of, of of friends and family and editors and, and and people around me who kind of help me help me to help me to make it all work. It's yeah, it's definitely a a big juggle. My my kids are um, six, almost four, and, and just turned one, and um, so. They definitely keep us on, on our toes, and like like you say, I've, the last year I've been on maternity leave with our with our youngest, which has um, looked a bit a little bit different from normal life. But next year I'll be next week I'll be be heading back to work and um, kind of I guess returning to to have what it was when when I when I started, which was day job day job in the day and writing job at night. Yes, and tell us a little bit about the day job. Um, so I work in um a in, in the government, I'm a I'm a public sector as uh, I'm a I'm a policy manager. So I um yeah I work work on whatever the the government priorities of of the day are. So it's not a particular department that specialises in like um, environment or anything like that. It's more a broad stroke. Uh, it is um, education. I work. Oh, it, oh okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You've got three little ones there whose education obviously is of great interest to you. Yeah, yeah. It's um this is this is a, a new role for me and that, that certainly played into it was that obviously with, with three little ones we're at we're at the beginning of a, a, a long journey through the New Zealand education system. So I'm I'm definitely very personally invested in it. And tell me, have you spent any time yourself living overseas? Because you're you know, as I say, I return to this, your settings are so convincing. Have you spent Pretty well, most of your life here in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, I've um, I've travelled a bit overseas, both um, both personally and and professionally. But I've I've never actually lived outside of New Zealand at all. Great. Well, you do a great job with your research and with Google. That's for sure. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, tell me, where can readers find you online? Um, so my website is www.caraisaac.com. Um, K-A-R-A-I-S-A-A-C. And then on Facebook, I'm just Cara Isaac Author. And Twitter, I'm just at Cara Isaac. Uh, do you have much time to do social media? Um, I mean, I, I, I certainly do my best to be productive in, in the time that I have. I, I don't have the time to live on it, but I certainly love engaging, um, engaging with my readers. And I find that social media is a really great way to be able to do that. Well, that's wonderful. People will be able to find you online and I know, I've seen some of those hilarious um, videos of you unwrapping boxes of books with your <laughs> gorgeous children. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're lots of fun. <laughs> okay, Gara, well, look, fantastic to have a chance to talk. We'll watch your progress with interest, and I'm sure readers will be delighted to find you online. Thanks so much for your time, Jenny. Thanks, Gara. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.